This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was uh, uh, sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Arthur Shawcross. Arthur John Shawcross was born on June 6, 1945, making him a Gemini in Kittery, Maine. So, if you've been with me for a while, I'm sure you have noticed the staggering number of serial killers born toward the end or just after World War II, and I will be doing a podcast on that in the future. So, with that said, let's touch on some things going on in the world in 1945. Franklin D. Roosevelt was the president, at least for a few months at the beginning of 1945. The U.S. deployed two atomic bombs on Japan for bombing Pearl Harbor, ushering in the surrender of Japan as well as the end of the war. Adolf Hitler married his longtime girlfriend, Eva, and the next day, they would commit suicide. The horrific concentration camps were thankfully being liberated. And even though the war was ending, lingering tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union continued on into what was called the Cold War. But post-war economic booms produced huge changes in the U.S.'s educational system and in the culture of consumerism. The introduction into what we now know of as the suburbs and the return of women back into the home from the factories as, you know, the men came home from war. Technology was evolving at an insane rate. It was the beginnings of a wonderful time in the country. So, as we've said before, the average new house cost was about $4,600. That, of course, could vary pretty widely depending on what part of the United States you live in. If you rented, it was an average of $60 a month. A year's wages were $2,400. A gallon of gas was just 15 cents. The average cost of a new car was just over $1,000. So Arthur's father was Arthur Roy Shawcross, born in 1924 to Fred and Muriel. Fred was originally from Illinois and moved to New York State where he met his wife Muriel, and they had three children. Arthur Sr. was the middle of those three children. Arthur's mother was Elizabeth, but went by Betty or Bessie, and she was born in 1927. Both of her parents were said to have been factory workers, and her family lived in Summersworth, New Hampshire. Bessie's father was originally from Greece, and her mother was of Mediterranean descent. Now, I would love to know what kind of father Arthur Sr. had, but I just couldn't find any additional information on Fred. But 
Arthur Sr. joined the Marines and served during World War II. He was an excellent soldier and he earned several Battlestar commendations and medals. Then in 1943, him and his group were sent to Australia for some downtime. While there, he met a girl named Thelma June at a dance. They were married four months later and had a son together that they named Hartley. Arthur Sr., now 21, was then given furlough in July of 1944 and returned to the United States where he took up with his childhood sweetheart, Betty, who was 18. She became pregnant quickly and he married her. This of course made Arthur Sr. a bigamist, having two wives illegally. Arthur John Shawcross was, of course, born less than a year after his father returned to the United States and he was born at the U.S. Naval Hospital in Kittery, Maine. He had been born a month premature, weighing only five pounds, and had to stay in the hospital for some time. He was also born with an extra chromosome, so instead of having an X and a Y, Arthur had XYY. So to touch on that for just a little bit, it's just that Arthur inherited an extra Y chromosome. So signs of this difference can be anywhere from, quote, no outward signs to some somewhat noticeable ones. This only happens in boys. And some of the signs can be that the boys grow to be a lot taller than their average height or their expected height. They might have low or weak muscle tone, a very curved pinky finger of all things, widely spaced eyes, and intense cystic acne during their teenage years. Also, some boys will have ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, autism, explosive temper, impulsivity issues, or defiant behavior. They also can have delayed developmental milestones such as speech or walking and so on. Now Arthur Sr. was a corporal and for whatever reason he sent Bessie and his infant son from Maine down to Watertown, New York where his family was and had her live with his sister until he could finish out his military service. Once he was out of the Marines, he and Bessie moved into their own small place in Brownville, New York, which is just northwest of Watertown and very, very close to the shores of Lake Ontario. The couple then went on to have three more children, Donna, Jean, and Jimmy. It is something to note that Arthur's siblings all grew up to be normal and have normal average lives. It has been noted that Arthur didn't walk until he was 15 months old, the average being between 9 to 12 months. But keep in mind he was premature. By age 5, when Arthur was in kindergarten, he missed 33 days of school and was still somewhat talking, quote, baby talk at that age, showing some speech delay. He was described as an odd child when he was small. It has been stated that his mother didn't pay as much attention to him as she did his siblings and he was always seeking her attention. Also around this age, he invented two imaginary friends and openly spoke to them. One was a boy named Paul that was about his age. The other was a bit younger girl who he never did name. His peers teased him, and he said that he created these friends because the other kids simply would not play with him. By the age of six, he earned his nickname Oddie, as in he was odd. At school, his teachers described him as having very little work ethic. Testing determined that he was quite below average intelligence, and he was already attempting to run away from home from what he later described as having to endure severe physical abuse. 
Around eight years old, he began bullying the younger children as well as his siblings and had a hard time making friends. He even hid under his teacher's desk. He was an extremely troubled and disturbed child as described by all of his teachers. He still continued to try to run away and was still very insecure about the affection and attention his siblings got compared to him. Now, according to the book, quote, talking with serial killers, the most evil people in the world tell their own stories, unquote, the school recognized that Arthur was having some very serious issues and contacted the school welfare officers who then conducted an investigation. Their findings were that his parents were excessively lenient with him actually not disciplining him as they probably should have but according to arthur his father beat him with his belt and drew blood and his mother was sexually abusing him so arthur began carrying a tire iron with him to school and he would hit the other children with it if he felt that they were bothering him the school recommended that he have a mental health evaluation so he was examined by psychologists who said he was, quote, attractive, neat, and well-dressed, unquote. They also noted that his relationship with his mother was a complex one. She would treat him like her favorite child and then turn around and harshly discipline him unnecessarily, and he displayed a confusion over that. Now, being that his father was former military and his mother was also meticulous about appearance, he was to have his room, his possessions, his clothing, and his personal grooming immaculate at all times. And if he didn't, the consequences were harsh. He later said that he stole money from his parents to pay off bullies at the school so that they would leave him alone. Arthur also developed a facial tic or chronic motor tic disorder and started his blinking habit that he had until he died. This disorder starts in children and the experts are not really entirely sure what causes it, but it is believed it is the result of physical or chemical abnormalities in the brain, that the neurotransmitters are misfiring or not communicating correctly which causes the same kind of message to be sent over and over and over, resulting in the physical tick or twitch. So if you watch interviews with Arthur, you will see him blink rapidly, repeatedly. So then at age nine, Arthur's grandmother received a letter from Thelma in Australia. How Thelma found out about her husband's second family and where they were, I couldn't find. But when Bessie found out that her husband had a wife and a child in Australia, she was of course enraged and upset. Arthur's mother ruled the roost and she controlled her husband. In fact, she actually consciously decided right then and there to make his life hell and she was fairly successful. They did not divorce but the family dynamic was forever changed. So Arthur also suffered a head injury during this time where he was hit in the head with a rock and he had to go to the hospital to get several stitches. He complained that he had numbness in that area for years after. So from this point in the story, it's hard to tell what is the truth and what isn't. Arthur's siblings maintain that he was treated perfectly fine by his parents and that no one was sexually abusing him. He paints a very different picture though. He also changed the story multiple times. So from now until the end of his childhood, there's just no guarantee that what he said actually happened. According to Arthur, he was horribly mistreated and sexually abused as a child. He said his mother played with his penis and kissed him. He says that he told her no and to stop. He says his mother performed oral sex on him for several years, 
according to him and his aunt in one particular instance did that or attempted to have intercourse with him when he was only nine years old. Of course, as with everything else, his story has changed over time. Arthur had to repeat the fourth grade after failing the first time. If he felt the other kids were bullying him, he would begin to cry and his speech would actually regress back into almost babbling. And yet he continued to bully smaller children. At age 10, he began shoplifting and stealing. He stated that he experimented with his sexuality, including girls, boys, with himself, and random animals by the time he was 11 years old. At 14 years old, he has claimed that he was having sexual encounters with a cousin as well as his little sister, Jean, but then he went on later to deny it. At 15 years old, he failed the eighth grade, thus setting him two years behind in school. He said that he had chronic nightmares and was still wetting the bed. Again, he was 15. He began starting fires and his bullying became markedly more violent. He began torturing animals such as skinning fish alive and seeing how long it would take them to die. He caught rabbits and broke their necks. He said that he tied cats together, stomped squirrels completely flat, nailed frogs to a dartboard, and even ripped feathers out of live chickens. He even drowned a kitten in front of another kid. Of course, none of his peers wanted anything to do with him, and he was described as a loner with his emotions on a hair trigger. At 16 years old, he was still in the 8th grade. He joined the wrestling team, but became violent when he was angered. It was at this point that he was hit in the head with a discus and had to spend four days in the hospital. By age 17, he had dropped out of school completely. No one bothered to try to hide their relief, either. So, that's his childhood. And analyzing any childhood trauma is difficult when it comes to Arthur Shawcross. He was a pathological liar. We cannot be sure if a lot of what he says happened to him during his childhood whether it's true or not. Now, we do know that he was premature. We know he had XYY chromosomes. We know he did suffer a head injury and had to go to the hospital. Technically, two head injuries, actually. And I think it is safe to believe the reports about him from former teachers and peers. So, let's start there. Arthur was slightly developmentally delayed when it came to when he began to walk, but not to the point that it would be of any real great concern. And also, we must remember that he was born premature, so with that added information, him being a few months behind on starting to walk makes it a little less impactful. And as far as the extra Y chromosome, we saw that it can and usually does affect boys. So let's look at that. So let's look at some of the, I guess we will call them symptoms of having that extra Y chromosome. ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, according to Healthline.com, is a complex neurodevelopmental disorder that affects a child's success at school and with relationships. They display self-focused behavior. That is to say that they have an inability to recognize other people's needs and desires. So examples would be interrupting people and having a hard time waiting their turn. Children with ADHD have a much harder time keeping their emotions and impulses under control. They are prone to temper tantrums and outbursts of anger. 
Most kids with ADHD cannot sit still and being forced to is just agony for them. They will often, for example, rapidly shake a foot while sitting or fidgeting in their chair. They have a much harder time being able to play by themselves calmly and quietly. Kids with ADHD have an incredibly hard time staying focused and paying attention even if they are being spoken to one-on-one. -on -one. They will say that they heard everything you said, but they cannot repeat it back to you. Chores or other tasks take an incredible amount of mental effort to stay on course. They have a harder time following instructions and have trouble keeping track of tasks and activities, which often causes issues at school with regards to homework. They are very forgetful and they lose possessions or objects often. I mean, as you can see, this would be difficult for not only the child, but everyone around him. Then, as an added bonus, that extra chromosome can lead to the child having an explosive temper, impulsivity issues, which is again a symptom of ADHD, um, defiant behavior, you know, all of these things that we see in young Arthur. So, okay. Now, before we address any of the sexual issues he later reported, setting that aside, let's put a pin in that for just a minute, okay? So let's pretend that we are the parent of a child with ADHD. Now, some of you very well may have children with this, and I actually have in-depth experience with it, so believe me when I tell you, it's tough. And by what his teachers observed, as well as his peers and what they reported, it sounds very much like this could have been an issue for Arthur. Kids with ADHD, they have a much harder time making friends because of their behavior that they really can't control for the most part. Most kids and teens don't want to be friends with someone who interrupts them constantly or doesn't act like they are at all interested in what's going on with them and kids that are in trouble all the time. Parents have a harder time dealing with their child with ADHD because the child seems like they aren't listening and it appears that they just don't seem to care about the rules of the house. They get into trouble a lot for their hyperactive behavior. Now, some people will tell you that ADHD isn't a, quote, real issue and that it is just a symptom of poor parenting and discipline. I will tell you with 100% certainty that that is not the case. Most all of these kids want to fit in and they get tired of always feeling like they are in trouble and that they cannot control their symptoms. And against popular belief, you cannot beat it out of them. It is a 10 minute interruption into their madness. So if we go back into the late 40s and on through the 50s, you know, back when Arthur was a youth, ADHD was still a debated topic. At first, it was described as a, quote, defect of moral control in children. And, you know, that is a fairly valid description. But it was not formally recognized in the DSM until 1968, and it was called, quote, hyperkinetic impulsive disorder back then. Most all of Arthur's behavior when he was a young child fits a diagnosis of ADHD. But back then, people didn't really understand it, and most just tried to spank the negative behaviors out of their children. And if Arthur's siblings did not have the same symptoms he did, well, I mean, of course he would see his parents as being nicer and more lenient with his brother and sisters. If his mother had times where she treated him like her, quote, little doll, well, most parents will at least on some level recognize when something isn't quite right with a child and perhaps she felt bad for being overly critical or her use of physical punishment sensing that he actually had an unusual issue so in my opinion I think this is what Arthur was dealing with as far as his overall behavior 
Now, Arthur did experience a head injury or a couple of head injuries substantial enough that he had to go to the hospital to have stitches in his head. Now, there was no reported skull damage or brain damage, though we can't be sure that there wasn't. And so I will lean toward this not being a contributing factor to his behavior just as a young child. Addressing the sexual abuse statements, Arthur maintained that his mother sexually abused him over the years and his aunt had had intercourse with him at nine years old. Now his family have completely denied all allegations of sexual abuse. Of course, most sexual abuse experienced by children from an adult is done when they are alone, under strict secrecy and usually followed by some form of threat if the child tells. If he were sexually abused, I doubt his family would know unless the abuser also abused other children in the family as well. So we can't really speak on these allegations. His stories of this abuse and from whom changed a lot over the years, leading me to believe he very well might have made them up. Now, I don't want to discount what he reported because many children suffer sexual abuse and when they finally speak out, they are either not believed or the problem is just kind of, you know, swept under the rug. And I don't want anyone who has suffered this kind of abuse to feel dismissed by me or anyone else. It's serious and I take it serious. So the few attempts at running away when he was a child could be taken a couple of different ways. One is that he was really experiencing this serious abuse and wanted to get away. And the other is that he was being dramatic because he craved so much attention. Arthur also stated that he had some level of sexual experiences with his sister, to which she, of course, has denied completely. Before he was even at the beginning stages of puberty, he said that he began to experiment sexually with girls and boys and animals. He was a chronic masturbator. Now again, it's hard to say if he's telling the truth or not. It's not out of the realm of possibility as a number of serial killers display sexual behaviors at a much younger age as well as torturing and mutilating animals. I mean, we, we hear this all the time. I think we'd have, I think we'd have to lean toward the abuse and torture of animals to be a true statement for Arthur. That pattern is really to be expected. And really the only things we have to go on are that he was born prematurely with an extra Y chromosome that can cause a few issues, was extremely insecure as a child, most likely lived with ADHD, which would be tremendously frustrating for him and everyone around him, and his behavior became alarmingly disturbed from a very young age. So, once Arthur was no longer in school, he began to burglarize people's homes, and he was even peeping into women's windows to watch them undress. At 18 years old, he was arrested for breaking into a Sears store and got 18 months probation. When he was 20 years old, he got into a supposed snowball fight with a 13-year-old boy and wound up being charged with attacking that youth. But it was becoming apparent that he actually preferred to hang out with younger teens than men his own age. In fact, he was caught on a few occasions playing with children's toys. It was also during his very young adulthood that due to his clumsiness, he incurred several more injuries from suffering a hairline skull fracture, from being hit in the head with an object to being electrocuted. He was also hit by a sledgehammer. He also fell off of a 40 foot ladder onto his head and yet another serious accident involving being hit by a passing truck. Before Arthur was 20 years old, he met Sarah Louise Chatteron, 
I wasn't able to find out really any information about Sarah other than she had married Arthur in September of 1964. The marriage quickly produced a son and they named that baby Michael who was born on October 2nd, 1965. The marriage ended quickly with Sarah later stating, quote, Arthur was very immature and always faking illness or injury to miss out on work. Sex with him was lousy, unquote. Also, he cheated on her often. And after their divorce, Sarah went on to marry another man who adopted Michael as Arthur did sign his rights away. And then Arthur never saw his son again. On April 7, 1967, 22-year-old Arthur was drafted into the Army and sent to Fort Lee, Virginia for training. It didn't take long for him to get into trouble, of course. A sergeant chewed him out for, quote, goofing off, to which Arthur responded, quote, what do you think I'm doing, pulling my pud? He was promptly fined for this remark. He finished out basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, and was assigned to be a supply and parts specialist. One day, he just, you know, didn't bother to come to work, and he was fined yet again. But after that, he decided to buckle down and take it seriously and showed that he was actually thriving in the highly structured environment. In October of 1967, while on leave, he married Linda Neary, who he had met in a bar. Soon after, he was sent to South Vietnam for the war. He worked with the supply and transport unit. Now, his official records state he saw no real action during this time in the Vietnam War. An investigative journalist actually tracked down and spoke to one of his commanding officers who verified he was only assigned to the supply and transport unit. Only assigned there. But Arthur had a completely different story. He said he was a weapons specialist and that he had his own bunker. He claims to have been sort of a Rambo character of sorts, you know, attacking Vietnamese people to get information and killing them in these really horrific ways. And he delighted in describing the, in the most graphic and disturbing things he did to these people, supposedly. He claims he ventured out into the jungle by himself hunting the enemy. He said he found two Vietnamese women out in the jungle and he beheaded one who had had lethal weapons strapped to her. He then said he cooked her body, splitting it in half and bit into the flesh to terrorize the other woman into telling him secrets. He also said he had few friends during this time over there and now conveniently doesn't remember any of the names of the men in his group. We do know that Arthur was over there for 13 months. He was brought back to the States where he was stationed in Oklahoma as specialist fourth class. He repaired weapons and was forced to go speak to the camp psychiatrist regularly. Finally in 1969 he was honorably discharged and he took his wife, Linda, and moved to Clayton, New York, which is right on the St. Lawrence River and very close to his own family. Arthur then applied for disability based on injuries from the war, though there was zero evidence that he had ever sustained any, but he bothered them enough that he was given $73 a month. In just seven months after his honorable discharge, Linda divorced him. She later stated that he would get angry and beat her, and one beating was so severe that she actually miscarried their baby at four months pregnant. 
Sometime during this time, Arthur had had an affair with a Hawaiian woman, and though he wasn't aware of it until he was long in prison, the woman had his daughter, but allowed her husband to raise the girl as his own, and the daughter never knew that her biological father was the Arthur Shawcross until her stepfather passed away. In April of 1969, Arthur was arrested for setting fire to the Knowlton Brothers paper mill as well as Crowley's Cheese Company and was sentenced to five years at Attica Prison. While in prison, Arthur said that he was raped by three inmates but bragged that he got his revenge. There's no telling if this is true or not but he was shortly after transferred to Auburn prison in 1970. While in prison there, he was examined by a psychologist who said Arthur was, quote, an immature adolescent with a schizoid personality who decompensated in ego functioning under the influence of unemployment stress, employment stress, and rejection by wife. He should be viewed as a schizoid arsonist who requires supervision, emotional support, and immediate referral to a mental clinic on parole, later projected homicidal attempt of at least two of his arsons should not be underestimated. He is a fair parole risk. He will require psychiatric treatment plus close supervision." Unquote. Now, this is something interesting that you rarely ever hear about people like Arthur Shawcross. He was paroled early because, get this, during a prison riot, Arthur actually saved the life of a prison official. Once he was paroled, he went back to Watertown, New York, and got a job with the Watertown Public Works Department. He was hired under the Federal Emergency Employment Program for people who had a criminal background. Now, he had barely settled back into civilian life when, in early 1972, he raped a 16-year-old girl in an underground room in an old railroad station and unfortunately, she never reported it. Then he reunited with a girl he had gone to school with by the name of Penny Sherbino. She was a petite girl with a great personality, as she was described. They dated for a bit and married in 1972, and then the couple moved into a two-bedroom apartment. The next month, Arthur decided to go fishing as he had always loved to do. Ten-year-old Jack Blake approached him and asked him if he wanted any worms to use as bait. The pair went off to go fishing together. Now, Jack's mother had specifically warned him to stay clear of Arthur Shawcross, who was quite known around town and had a bad, bad reputation. So when Jack didn't come home later that day, his mother immediately called the police and told them that she had told Jack he was not allowed to go fishing with Arthur, but that she suspected he must have gone with him anyway. Of course, he denied ever seeing Jack and there was no evidence to prove otherwise. So it was assumed Jack had just ran away from home. Just over a week after Jack disappeared, Arthur was busted bullying a six-year-old boy by stuffing freshly mowed grass inside his little shirt and shorts and spanking him. But he only got a $10 fine and a reprimand from the court, which I find odd. Four months later, on September 2nd, 1972, Arthur saw eight-year-old Karen Hill playing in her front yard. Other children playing in the area testified that they saw Arthur leading Karen across a bridge not far from where she was playing. They said that they saw him walk her down to the back of the bridge down to the river to see some fish. What the children didn't see was Arthur raping and then strangling young Karen. And once she was dead, he stuffed her into a sewage pipe 
face down and put a slab of concrete over her little body. Once it was reported that she was missing, those children told the police what they saw. Karen's body was discovered later that night by the police. They brought in police dogs who promptly led the officers straight to Arthur's door and he was arrested right then and there. An autopsy was performed on the girl and what Arthur did to her body, well, I just cannot bring myself to describe it here. He did the unthinkable and then stuffed every orifice with mud and debris. And that's all I will say. During his questioning, Arthur hinted at the disappearance of a little boy, and the police immediately jumped on the information and searched a nearby creek where Jack's now badly decomposed body was found. What Arthur did to Jack was equally vile. He was sentenced to up to 25 years in prison for first-degree manslaughter. He served 14 and a half years in prison. Now, I've never spent any time in prison, but there seems to be a code among the criminals there, a camaraderie, if you will. That is, unless you mess with children. The inmates at the prison knew Arthur had raped and murdered two children, that he was a sadistic pedophile. So Arthur was beat mercilessly and abused nearly constantly while he was in Attica. This abuse followed him, of course, to Greenhaven Correctional Facility, which is about 40 miles or so north of New York City. This prison has a reputation for keeping many of the area's most evil criminals. Being that Arthur was now a known pedophile and child murderer, his life was in danger. The psychiatrist at the prison diagnosed him as, quote, a dangerous schizophrenic pedophile suffering from an intermittent explosive personality. He heard voices when he was depressed and enraged and engaged in fantasy as a source of satisfaction. He also has an oral erotic fixation for the need of maternal protection, unquote. For his own protection, he was segregated from the other inmates. While there, he continually complained of various illnesses and pretended to have a variety of mental illnesses because he loved the attention. When none of these things worked, he decided to play nice with his therapist and pretend to be a born-again Christian, and slowly but surely, he was starting to look like a model prisoner. He actually got his GED while there, and he studied carpentry. Arthur was paroled on April 28, 1987, after only serving 15 years. One of the parole officers had this to say, quote, At the risk of sounding dramatic, this man could be possibly the most dangerous individual to have been released to this community in years." Unquote. So Arthur was now 42 years old. He wasn't the young, you know, in-shape man that had entered that prison. He was overweight, head full of gray hair, and he was now also divorced again. But, you know, awaiting his release was a pen pal named Rosemarie Wally. Arthur had a hard time finding steady work due to his rather deadly reputation, but he and Rose moved into an apartment in Rochester. Rose worked as a nurse in the hospital, and Arthur worked for a vegetable and fruit wholesaler and was described as a good employee. He also rode a girl's bike back and forth to work. During his spare time, he fished in the Genesee River. He and Rose were married, but Arthur definitely had girlfriends on the side. He was also bragging to people that he had murdered a man for killing his wife. He also said he had once been a mafia hitman, but of course no one believed him. But their curiosity led them to speaking to the local police, who informed them of his criminal past, and they fired him. 
Arthur then went to work as an overnight salad maker for a food service that catered to hospitals and schools. On March 24, 1988, 27-year-old mother of three, Dorothy Blackburn, was found floating face down in a creek. Some men were working to clean up around the area and at first they thought they'd found a mannequin. They called the police. Now, the autopsy found that she had been strangled and had bite marks all over her genital area. When asked later, Arthur said he had killed her because she had laughed due to his body not, let's say, responding to the stimulus that she was giving him and had bit his penis. In July of that same year, Arthur killed 27-year-old Anna Marie Steffen, who was a drug-addicted prostitute. He picked her up for a, quote, date, and they went behind the local YMCA to, well, you know, complete their transaction. He then drove her near the Genesee River. He strangled her and rolled her body into the water. Her remains, save her eyeballs, were found two months later by someone looking for glass bottles to get money from. Not long after Anna, Arthur met Dorothy Keeler and asked her to go fishing with him. They then had sex. After, he accused her of stealing from him, to which she stated she hadn't, and he beat her to death with a chunk of wood. He left the scene, then sometime later he came back and because the local wildlife had gotten to her, her head was somewhat separated from her body so he finished removing it. He picked up her head and threw it into the river after pleasuring himself. She was found months later by salmon fishermen. For a year and a half, Arthur went on to kill another nine women nearly all prostitutes. He cut them open and mutilated them horribly. He later told a reporter that one prostitute had told him that a few of the other prostitutes he had slept with had had AIDS. So over the course of some time, he had picked those women up and murdered them. He claimed to have cannibalized a lot of the remains. Then, on January 2nd, 1990, there was finally a break in the case. The police sent a helicopter up to search for a body along the river. The helicopter spotted a man on a bridge near where one of the murder victims had been found. There was also a small van nearby. And despite officials on the ground, Shawcross got away. However, they were able to get the license plates off of the van. They ran them and ultimately traced them back to Arthur Shawcross. So they took the time to look into his past and they quickly learned about his violent criminal past. They went to his house to speak to him where he denied any involvement in any of the murders. So the police decided to pull back just a bit but keep him under surveillance. The next morning, he was taken in to talk with investigators. Finally, he confessed to killing the women as if he were reciting from a book. There was zero emotion or empathy or remorse. There was none, none. His official confession was 80 pages long. During the trial, he claimed his mother had shoved a broom handle up his rectum. But there was no physical evidence of such trauma. His mother was confused and denied all of the accusations as she was there during his court stuff. He maintained that it was true though, and when asked why there was no medical records to show any of the abuse and damage to his body that he claimed he endured from his childhood, he said that he didn't have medical records because his mother never took him to the doctor. But here comes the interesting stuff. Experts did scans of his brain and they did show some abnormalities. They called it, quote, paroxysmal 
irritative pattern in bifrontal temporal areas more on the right side, unquote, which is a mouthful and is just a fancy way of saying that there were sharp waves or spikes which show cerebral bursts associated with seizures. Arthur had actual scarring in his frontal lobe, which is, you know, the part of the brain that helps us regulate our behavior and thoughts about right and wrong. He also had a small cyst in his temporal lobe. Now, he said during the trial that the moments leading up to the murders, he did see a bright white light. He would wake up in his car, look beside him, and see the dead body, for example, and that he had no memory of the incident or no control. But the fact remains that he took measures to conceal his murders. He would mutilate and mess with the bodies after they were dead, then drop the bodies where they'd be least likely found. He was ultimately found guilty during his trial and sentenced to 250 years in prison. And then on November 10, 2008, he died from cardiac arrest. So Arthur was born with an extra Y chromosome and that can lead to some notable issues with a child. Issues like ADHD, having an explosive temper, impulsivity issues or defiant behavior. And since we know he was a difficult child, it would be reasonable to assume that his parents had a much harder time keeping him in line compared to his siblings, which he interpreted as them giving his siblings more attention. Was Arthur sexually abused as a child? Well, we'll never know with 100% certainty. Odds are he wasn't because he was most definitely a pathological liar. Even researching his case proved fairly difficult because he changed his stories so much. So as far as the sexual abuse goes, what if he was? And then of course he had the scarring in his brain, some notable head injuries in his past and even a cyst in his brain. We already know that head trauma can affect a person's reasoning skills greatly. But what do you think? Please leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com, which is always under construction. I'm sorry. And also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes a lot of hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I do love doing it for you. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.